Well, like we said last week, we began opening up this book of the prophet Micah. And really at the heart of the book of the prophet Micah is this problem of sin. And if we're honest, while we all know that we have problems, that we have sin, none of us really enjoy hearing about it. Sometimes we just sort of tune it out and avoid it. Other times, when we're confronted by our sins, we act negatively, angrily. And we've seen, even in the book of Micah, that this is the way that the people responded to Micah's prophecy. You remember in Micah chapter 2 and verse 6, where the people cry out to Micah, they say, Do not preach! Do not preach! And Micah says, Thus they preach. Right? Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. They didn't want to face up to the reality of their personal sin. But whatever our reaction to it, its presence is real. You might deny gravity, but if you jump out of a plane, you will quickly come to a realization of your error. We must address the reality of sin in our lives. This is where the Bible is so helpful. There's a relentlessness in the word of God. God's word is relentlessly true. And sometimes it's so true that it cuts us right to our heart. Cuts through us like a knife. Hebrews uh, chapter 4 verse 1 says that the word of God is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Let me ask you this. We just turned into January. Many of us have our new Bible plans. If you haven't got a Bible plan, if you're kind of late to it, there's one on the table at the back there. But let me just ask you this. Are there parts of the Bible that you avoid because they're just a little bit too pointy? Right? You take comfort in certain Psalms and you just meditate in the Psalms. Oh, I feel so good. I feel so good. Right? But then you come across Micah. Man, Micah is full of judgment. He's full of pointy bits. What do we make of a book like Micah, which is full of God's judgment? There are some wonderfully encouraging parts about the book of Micah, which I hope you've seen as we've gone through, and I think we'll see even more so this morning. But why would you read the book of Micah? Well, the very basic answer to that is because it's God's word. Right? He's the one who made you. And he wants you to know this. And this has been recorded and preserved throughout time and history in order to instruct us. In Corinthians, Paul says, these things, he's speaking of the Old Testament, were written for your instruction. So it's there for us. And he goes on in in 2 Timothy to say that all scripture, and he means graphe, he's he's, he's summarizing all of the Old Testament and the prophets and everything. He says, they're profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness. And that means the Old Testament too. Jesus Christ says on the road to Emmaus that all of it is written about him. So we need to preach and go through the Old Testament and see the glory and the wonder of this. Even and especially when it's a bit pointy. So how might the book of Micah be helpful to us? What is Micah trying to teach us? We've already seen connections as we've been going through this little mini-series to our own day. 
We see filth in our own cities. We see corruption and leaders who call evil things good things. And like the false prophets of Micah's day, we have so-called religious leaders here on the island and in Canada and elsewhere who are only interested in exploiting and profiting from their people. Sin is not new. Wickedness and evil is not new. There's nothing new under the sun. And while we, as a people, might not do as the Israelites were doing and go up to the temple uh, and, and, and seek out prostitutes and have sexual acts with them, we are, as a society, is increasingly obsessed with the idols of sensuality and sexuality. We are greedy and self-obsessed. It shouldn't be too hard for us to see a reflection of our own sinful selves in the sins that Micah is calling out among the people of Israel and Judah. In fact, I really do hope that as we've been going through this series, you've been able to feel a little bit of the pointy bits come at you. Because that's the purpose of God's word. But I hope that you've also been touched by the reality and the relentlessness of sin. The question is, what do we do with it? Large or small, what do we do with our sin? Well, we're going to look at these last two chapters this morning. What I have to say about them and the reality of our guilt is that Micah here presents not only the gospel, but he models for us a way to address sin. When we feel the pointy bits pressing against our heart, he gives for us a model of how to address our sin. We see a powerful model here. I like, I like how John Piper has called Micah's approach here gutsy guilt. Gutsy guilt that gives us hope in the mess that is our sinful hearts and our sinful world. We're going to look then at these two chapters, chapter 6 and chapter 7. We'll go back to the, the prophecy in, in Micah 5 a little bit as well. But we're going to look at it under three headings this morning. Take notes, they are the gravity of our sin, first of all. Secondly, the gutsy guilt to address it. And thirdly, the greatness of God's love and compassion. The gravity of our sin, the gutsy guilt to address it, and the greatness of God's love and compassion. Well, let's look first of all then at the gravity of our grievous sin. So we said... In our introduction, we don't like to hear a command from God that we cannot fulfill. Remember last week, we talked about Augustine and Pelagius. These were uh, church fathers at the time. And Augustine had a prayer. He said, grant what thou commandest and command what thou desirest. And this is what upset his rival, Pelagius. Pelagius refused to believe that God would command something that man could not fulfill in his own strength. If God commanded a man to repent, Pelagius thought, well, he has the means of repentance. Right? But as we saw, God does command. It is God who commands, and it is God who saves. It's God who gives the gift of repentance. It is God who gives the gift of of faith. Salvation is all of God. Now, 
Pelagius refused to believe that God would command something that man could not fulfill. But how do we see the scriptures address this? Because ultimately, we're not looking to Augustine or to Pelagius. We're looking to the word of God. And as we see here, Micah shows us our sin. We see it throughout the book, but let's start again this morning by looking at chapter 6. And in the first five verses of this chapter 6, we see the sin of the Israelites very clearly. We see, it's again, this, this covenant law language that God uses. He has Micah the prophet as his prosecuting attorney. He says, hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. And God here is confronting Israel with his sin. And if you go down, you see what he does. He says, hear you mountains, the indictment. And he says, the indictment against his people in verse 2. And he says, what have I done to you? Verse 3, how have I wearied you? Answer me. It's like God's saying, am I boring you? <laughs> am I boring you that you have to go somewhere else to find your salvation? And then he reminds him. He says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I said to you before Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, you remember those ten plagues? Remember that concentration camp of Egypt? What happened to that? Oh, yeah, I brought you out through ten plagues. Oh, yeah, and I opened up the Red Sea and had you cross on dry land, and your enemies came after you, and they were crushed. Then I brought you before the mountain with Moses, and I gave you the law. To guide you. And I, I carried you. And he does he keeps he goes on and he says, Oh people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. Right? He's giving them salvation history. You remember Balaam, right? He was he was commissioned here by Balak, king of Moab, to curse Israel. But what did God do? He turned his curses into blessing. He's like, Do you remember that? You remember that? Oh, maybe you don't remember that. What happened from Shittim to Gilgal? What is he talking about? Shittim is on the, uh, the the desert side of the Jordan. And Gilgal is on the, 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 the Transjordan side. It's on the other side. He's saying, I carried you to over the Jordan River. See this in Joshua chapter 3. And what was that? Well, that was a pretty miraculous thing. They were crossing the Jordan River at its height. It's incredibly deep. One of the deepest gullies uh, in, uh, in the world is actually in that Jordan area. Right? Carried you safe on... Jordan's shore, I forget, there's a hymn that speaks of that. But you remember Israel. Remember your priests, they put their, their little toes in the water in this, this rushing stream, and all of a sudden, poof, it dried up. And you were able to walk along and Gary come into the promised land. So here, you know, God's saying, is that not enough for you? Did, was that, like, am I boring you? Is that not enough? I, I've carried you all those ways, and now, now you're going to forget me? After I've done all of these things for you? This is the case that, that God is bringing against you. And I think it's, it's a case that still can be prosecuted against us. How quickly do we forget the goodness of our Lord God? Right? It's interesting how much of our prayer is occupied with requests and not with thanks. thanks. Thanksgiving is actually meant to be a part of our prayers. But is Thanksgiving a part of your prayers? I think it's an important thing for us. We need to be reminded. One of the things I think that God has designed by giving us one day in seven to come and worship is to be reminded of his goodness and his grace and his faithfulness and his kindness. To come and sing his praises. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace 
Grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Christian, if you're a Christian this morning, you've received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. All the wickedness and sin that you have committed in the past, and even the sins that you are committing in the present, and may commit in the future, they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That doesn't get old, or it shouldn't. The joy of our salvation and grace to God. We need reminders of this. Because if we don't, what do we do? Instead of turning to God in gratefulness, we become self-interested, self-possessed, and we pursue our own idols. And we build up, store up treasures for ourselves that perish, spoil, and fade. So God comes to Israel. He's not going to let them go. He wants them to see their sin. But then we come to this tremendous passage here in chapter 6, where he says, so what do you want? What does the Lord require? He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down myself before God on high? Shall I come with him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give up my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And here he shows them a worldly response to sin, right? Basically, we try to buy off God. That's what paganism really is. We try and buy off God with offerings. Right? And the purpose of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was not to buy off God. It was to convey the seriousness of covenant violation. Because even if they came with offerings, they may not be accepted. In fact, it was impossible for Israel to fulfill the perfect, the, the perfection of God's law. That was actually part of the reason. When you go through the Old Testament, you're like, wow, this is impossible to fulfill. You got the point. Because no one is perfectly righteous. The law does not bring salvation. The law brings us under the bonds of condemnation for our sin. So it doesn't matter how many bulls you sacrifice. And, and the wickedness in Israel and the cultures around them had gotten to the point where they had started to worship like the god of Molech. And Molech was appeased, how? By giving up the firstborn son. Basically, you would take your beloved child and you would take him and kill him. And this outward act would somehow cleanse you within. He's saying, that's not what God wants. What does God want? He has told you, verse 6, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, what is this? Is this something that we can do in our unrighteousness? No. Micah has been convicting us of our sin all along. This is the problem. This is the standard of God's righteousness. There is no one among us who does justice, love kindness, and walks humbly before our God consistently. So, what do I do? What is the standard? How shall I come into the face of God's perfect justice? What is this this section here, this verse that we often hear, sort of lifted out of its context, what is it actually alluding to? Well, I agree with many of the commentators, including Anthony Silvaggio, that the threefold standard expressed in Micah 6.8 here is simply a shorthand version, a shorthand way of referring to the eternal standard of God's holy moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. 
you're looking at this passage and you're like, oh, Pastor Chris, what are you talking about? To do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God? How is that the Ten Commandments? Well, let's consider the substance of that triad for just a few moments itself. What does it mean, first of all, to act justly? Well, it means more than just cleaning up corrupt courts. It's a call to order one's entire life according to the revealed will of God. It means living in compliance with God's standards of righteousness, particularly with the treatment of others. William Van Gemmeren says this, he says, Justice, as it pertains to human beings, is that quality of integrity by which one deals with people in accordance with God's standards. In Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, God is calling on Israel and Judah to act justly in their relationship with their neighbors. Secondly, in the second part of the triad, he says to love mercy. Now, the word translated as mercy in English, in Hebrew, is my favorite Hebrew word, which is chesed, right? The steadfast love and mercy of God. And it expresses the faithfulness of God in a covenantal relationship. And God expressed his chesed, his mercy, to the Israelites in the context of his covenant relationship with him. And here, he's calling on them, not only to have chesed towards him, but chesed towards his, their neighbors. They are to show mercy, they are to show steadfast love to their neighbors. And then the third part of the triad is to walk humbly with God. And that just doesn't mean, you know, walking along and showing God a measure of deference or a modicum of respect. It's a call to walk carefully with God. Very much like Enoch in Genesis. Walk with him and then he was no more because God took him. It's to keep in step with God in holiness and in grace. So therefore, to walk with humbly with God is particularly related to our spiritual service to God. We're called to approach the living God, and those who approach Him must honor Him. Remember that the, the kingdom of Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests. Exodus chapter 19 says this, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Well, we start to see this triad has a very broad scope. It called on the people of Israel and the people of Judah to basically do two things. To love their neighbors and to love their God. Does that sound familiar? Are not those two requirements at the heart of the Ten Commandments? For example, those, those first two, to act justly and to love mercy, are very similar to the substance contained in the last five commandments, what we call the second table of the law. Right? And the final element there, to walk humbly with your God, is similar to the substance of the first four commandments, the first table of the law. The first four commandments and the, and the last five. The first four are towards God. We start with God and our relationship with Him. No other gods, which defines the whole thing. And then we proceed in the second table of law for our love for our neighbors. Now others, not just me, have noted this connection between Micah 6.8 and the Ten Commandments. 
example, John Calvin stated the following in his commentary on Micah. He says, it is evident that in the first two first particulars, he refers to the second table of law, that is to do justice and to love mercy. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus confronted the Pharisees. And notice the familiarity of the charge he brings against them. He says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Doesn't that sound very much like the triad that we have here in Micah 6.8? William Hedrickson noted this. He says, as to the triad, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, it'd be difficult to find a better commentary than the one offered by Micah 6, verse 8. Let's be real here. We should expect this, shouldn't we? God doesn't change. He is immutable. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the God of the New Testament. He never changes. And he commanded Israel and Judah to keep his law. Their problem, and our problem, is that they failed to do it. They were acting unjustly. They were not merciful to their neighbors. And they were not walking humbly with their God. The problem was that they could not fulfill God's standards on their own. Israel and Judah could not fulfill it. The Pharisees and teachers of the law could not fulfill it. The rich young ruler could not fulfill it. And 2,500 years later, we in Bridgetown, Barbados, cannot fulfill it either. Wonder? Do you always act justly? Do you always love mercy? Do you always walk humbly with your God? Do you keep God's commandments? I think one of the most convicting things is to meditate. I know Pastor John this year did a series on the Ten Commandments. And it's worth going back and, and listening to that series. In fact, I'm listening to that series myself. And I think it's very helpful for us to be reminded that we fall short. That we need God's grace. The problem by, that, that, that Mike is addressing here is not an ancient one, just limited to that space and time of the people of Israel, it's a common one. It's a modern one. It must be addressed. The bad news is that we have a sinful moral character. And we're accountable for our sins. If you think this morning that you can get away with your sin, you are a fool. You're accountable for it. Hebrews 9 tells us that every one of us must die, and after that, Face the judgment. That's a loving word to warn of these things. The judgment in the throne room of God. Are you ready for the judgment throne room of God? I think sometimes we are very sort of casual about the reality of our sin and the holiness of God. Sometimes... I go back to a passage that I remember hearing preached on by D.A. Carson when I was a child at camp. And he preached a series in the book of Revelation. And he preached something that just blew me away in Revelation chapter 4 and Revelation chapter 5. He preached a series on the throne room of God. And he said, you guys just need to listen to this. And he read out Revelation 4 and 5. And you have this, again, it's pictorial language, representative language, but it conveys an awesomeness, a gravity, a depth that I sometimes think we forget when we come into the presence of a holy God. 
It's not a bad thing. Maybe even this afternoon, as you go home, open up Revelation 4 and 5. Think about it. Meditate on who it is that you are sinning against. But the bad news of our sin is balanced by the good news that Jesus Christ fulfilled God's righteous standard on behalf of his people, on behalf of those who would believe in him. This is why that prophetic statement in chapter 5 is so key, because it brings the promise of the Messiah, the one who would bring redemption from sin. The New Testament tells us that Jesus was born under the law. Our long gospel reading tonight is actually from Galatians chapter 4. I won't quote that for you. But we see that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That was why Jesus came. Because we could not fulfill the law in our sinfulness. And Paul tells us, through the obedience of Christ, we are made righteous before God. Romans 5, verse 19 says, For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So all of this points forward to the fact that Jesus, then, through Jesus, we become the righteousness, the holiness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made him who who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is the great law keeper. That's why you not only need to receive the gift of forgiveness of sin, you also need to receive the gift of Christ's active obedience. Right? Talk about the great exchange. And what we receive at the cross of Christ is not only his work to turn away the wrath of God for our sin, but also the active obedience of his entire life is credited from his account to ours. So when Jesus and God look down upon us and they see our sin, they see that the righteous acts of Jesus Christ and his obedience is what is to our account, not our sinful Activity, And here's the glory of this passage. Because Jesus not only went to the cross for you, but he lived Micah 6, verse 8 for you. That's an impossible standard to do justice and love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. All of us fall short of that standard. But Jesus didn't. Jesus came and he lived Micah 6, 8. Jesus is our righteousness. Praise God. This is our joy. Our sin is grievous. We can't keep the Ten Commandments. But Jesus is our righteousness. Hallelujah. Jesus has paid the price for my sin. My lust. My anger. My wickedness. My envy. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is your righteousness. Do you know Jesus Christ? You need to. Because your righteousness is nothing. It says filthy rags. As Isaiah says. Your best deeds are filthy rags. You have no righteousness in and of yourself. Jesus, however, is our righteousness. And that's a glorious, glorious truth. But we need to address it, don't we? That's where we come secondly. The problem of our sin is there. 
How do we address it? Well, we need gutsy guilt to address it. We need to know that there's actually hope for us. This is the promise that we have. That God is a gracious God. And he brings salvation through judgment. And we see this throughout the book as there is little gracious interludes between the judgment proclamations that are there. We saw it at the end of chapter 2 last week. Where Micah speaks of the shepherd who breaks open the gate of bondage. And again in chapter 4, which speaks of a returning king. Even after the exile, there's no actual kingdom there. But there will be a king. He will come. And he did. Jesus Christ. Both of these passages anticipate the shepherd and the righteous Messiah king. The one who is promised to come and deliver his people from sins. And as we said last week, Mike is full of these wonderful supernatural prophecies that help us to give confidence. Why do we read these prophecies? Well, we read them, and then we read their fulfillment. And it reminds us, oh yeah, not only did God stop, He didn't stop with Israel, He keeps on keeping His promises. He makes them, and He keeps them. Helps us to see that God keeps His promises. And as we said, Micah has some significant prophecies. One we didn't touch on last week comes in chapter 4, verse 10. What does he do there? Well, he prophesies that Babylon, you shall go to Babylon. Now, we all know that that's what happened. Remember, this is happening over a hundred years before it actually happened. He made who was going to take them over. At the time, it wasn't Babylon, it was Assyria. Assyria was great. And Assyria took the top ten tribes, but Babylon came and took Judah. But Babylon wasn't the great country that it was a hundred years later. It's 130 years before this happened. It It was a time where they just weren't a major power. Just one more indicators of the amazing nature of prophecy in the scriptures. I was preaching through the book of Isaiah a few years ago. I love the book of Isaiah. And I came across a prophecy I hadn't heard of before. I had forgotten about. It's just a little minor one. Isaiah 44, 28 to 45. 48, sorry. Uh, 20, 44, 28 to 45, verse 1. And he prophesies. And guess what he does? He says, I'm going to tell you which king it is that's going to release you. Even before he's born, Isaiah names that it will be Cyrus. He gives a name. 150 years before Cyrus came to the throne, the Israelites knew through the prophetic revelation of God. Now, as we said last Sunday night, lots of people want to deny this. They don't like supernatural predictive prophecy. They don't want to believe in what the prophet Daniel calls God in heaven who reveals mysteries. They don't want to accept the, the God hypothesis, as they say. They have to find a different reason. So they create multiple elders. They're, they're, if, you, if you read liberal theologians, they'll say there are three ideas. right? And, and they're cobbled together and stitched together into one great big book. They don't want to confront the reality of a supernatural God. And this is what Micah claims. If you want to see the truth, why don't we just accept and see what the scripture claims for itself? Micah distinguishes himself from all the fakes and the frauds, all the false prophets for hire back in his day. Back in chapter 3, he says, The sun shall go down on the false prophets, and the day shall be black over them, for there is no answer from God for them. 
And in verse 8, he says, But as for me, I am filled with power and with the Spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. This prophecy is a gift from God to his people. It brings judgment, but it also brings great encouragement. As we said before, that centerpiece in chapter 5 is that prophecy. 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem of Hathra, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty, in the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Again, that beautiful prophecy of Christ. It's interesting, it's not Jerusalem that's the origin. Jerusalem is the city of David and his dynasty, but the origin of the new ruler, the new Messiah, will be in Bethlehem. Precisely because of its utter insignificance. What does it say here? It says, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It will be a new beginning, a new Davidic king. Not the legacy of the old. And it will begin as God often does with a lowly, common, unnoticed, and insignificant birth in a stable, in a manger. But this is not a coming forth for Israel. It says in verse 2, it's for me. God is at work for his purposes. And that helps us because it enables us to endure the pains of living in this world. One of the reasons why we have this prophecy is to see how God equipped his people when they were facing a future of slavery. What he does is he tells them the truth and he gives them the promise of redemption. David's kingdom, at this time that Micah is prophesying, appears to be a complete loss. But Micah tells them that there will be a restart. How does he do that? What is the purpose of this? Well, it helps them to make sense of their circumstances. Verse 3 is a terrifying verse in the middle of that messianic prophecy. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Calvin puts it this way. He says, Micah proclaims that even the faithful will experience being given up for a time. This fever saying, my friends, God is going to allow your enemies to afflict you. And you will experience no relief to your sufferings. Why? God is going to give you up as if he could not care less about you. This is what he warns. That you might be ready to receive your afflictions with patience. This prophecy in Micah, even though it carries judgment, is meant to encourage the people of God to hope and trust. And I think it really speaks to the reality of life in this world. Life in this world is not one of health, wealth, and prosperity. I know some of you, even recently, have endured or are enduring great pain in your life. Many of you think that maybe you have too much that you can bear. This pain may be related to some sin you've committed in your life, or it might just be the overall curse of sin that taints and infects every good thing that God has created and makes us long for something else. 
You're not alone. John Knox, the famous Scottish reformer, got sick at one point. He got sick and tired of life itself when Queen Mary, the evil Queen Mary, bloody Queen Mary, was in power. And he famously prayed this. He said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and put an end at thy good pleasure to my miserable life. For justice and truth are not to be found among the children of men. It's a cry. It's a prayer of despair. And Christians get depressed too. Depression and discouragement are real challenges in this life. And sometimes through the circumstances, we can be utterly overwhelmed. But the truth is that if you know that things will change, it's amazing what you can endure. Some of you may have heard of the Holocaust survivor, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl, he was a psychologist. And uh, he, he, he was captured, he was a Jew, he was captured, he was put into the Nazi death camp at Auschwitz. And he was a psychologist before he went to Auschwitz. And he, he, he just couldn't help but observe what was going on in the camp. And one of the things he observed as he was watching these thousands of prisoners, hundreds of prisoners coming in every day, thousands uh, a week and, and, and ultimately millions over the, the period, is that whatever physical shape you were in before you came into the camp didn't matter very much. What he realized was the people that survived were people that had something to live for. He saw scrawny, weak, girly men survive years of incredible horror because they had hope. Because they saw, and he saw big, strong, muscular men quickly die because they had nothing to live for. And what God is giving to us in Micah and his people in Israel at the same time is that hope. There will be trouble in this world. There will be suffering. There will be terrible consequences of sin. But there will be a new king who will arise, who will save his people, who will deliver them. The son of David, born again in Bethlehem of Hapra, the fruitful Bethlehem. That's what Hapra means. Not only the mighty David will be born there, but the great Jesus Christ will be born there. With this hope of a savior, Michael also brings the hope of the remnant. We saw this back in chapter 2, verse 12, where he said, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob, and I will gather the remnant of Israel. There will be judgment. God will hold his people accountable. But by his mercy alone, he will save a portion of them. He picks us up in chapter 5 and continues on. The true covenant people of God will be delivered. And this is really important for us to understand. You may have heavy sin that is dominating your life right now. In order to address that sin, you need to have hope that you can be delivered from it. One of the lies of the devil is to think, well, you're born this way. There's no way that you can escape your anger problem. There's no way that you can escape your lust problem is just a result of your glands. Just you. You're stuck. You're defined by your biology, your temperament. You just have this proclivity to sin and there's just no hope for you. 
But if we have the promises of God, we can address sin in amazing and supernatural ways. Because we are not just products of our biology. We are body and soul. And if we are Christians, God has given us a new heart. Some of you may have heard the quote that Tim Keller has summarizing the gospel. He says, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Do you believe that about yourself? It's hard to believe that you're wicked, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The liberal church in Canada changes that to amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved such a one as me. Because they don't like that word wretch. I'm not a wretch. Such a one as me. It's not what the Bible says. We are wretched sinners. We are the worst. We are sinful and flawed in ourselves that we ever believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we dared hope. That's the gospel. That's God's mercy. But we must confront the reality of our sin before we can grasp the reality, the necessity, the beauty of God's love. Can't get cured until you acknowledge the sickness. We can't save ourselves. We need to understand. I was listening to a podcast by John Piper, where he's addressing a question. Some of you have heard of his podcast. It's worth listening to. It's called Ask Pastor John. And one of the uh, the questions, you've got another Pastor John. He's a good one. He should do his own podcast. But one of the questions that he got on that came from an anonymous woman who confessed to the sin of abortion. And she was totally broken up over it. And she was coming to grips with the fact of her sin. And she doubted whether there was any hope at all for her. And in response, John Piper pointed her to chapter 7 of Micah. And in chapter 7, we see a pretty, pretty bleak situation. The prophet's lament over his people. He says, Woe is me, for I become as when summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first fruit ripe fruit, that my soul desires the godly have perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts for the other with a net. Their hands are not on, are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright of them like a thorn edge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from the her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Not a very pleasant place to live. It's an understatement, isn't it? Wickedness there. But he didn't just read the first six verses, he read the seventh. But as for me, Micah now, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, what was he doing by pointing her to that verse seven? He was trying to encourage this woman that had murdered. That Micah here is a contrast to our society, to everyone else. 
And for us, he is a model. Verse 7 begins there, but he says, but as for me. He's like, sin exists all out there, but it also exists in here, in me. But as for me, he has that gutsy guilt to confront reality. Whatever we've done, whatever we have sinned, we must acknowledge it. You cannot hide your sin. It's so funny, isn't it? How we try to hide our sin. I see this a lot with my kids. I come into the room and all of a sudden there's a flurry. Everything's fine here, Dad. Pass along, pass along. Everything's good. Right? Right? Nothing to see here. Exactly. Exactly. There's lots to see. And I see it. I'm not ignorant. But Micah here. It's important for us to see this. And, And me, myself, as a pastor, we're just men. He's a mouthpiece of God. He's just a man, but he's a sinner like the rest of us. He's broken the commandments, all of them, at some time or another. But unlike many others, Micah here owns his sin. He owns his guilt. He's in darkness, sitting there on the Lord, and the Lord is disciplining him. He's under God's judgment. And here's the reality. We all are under God's judgment because of our sin. He says, I sit in darkness. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned. Micah here, prophet of the Lord, righteous man in Israel, is not making excuses for his own sin. He's acknowledging. He's not pretending this is from the devil. Oh, the devil made me do it. Right? We have culture. This is... There's this, uh, this ministry, they, they have these ministries called ecclesiastic ministries, where they cast out demons, and it's always demons that are causing you to do sin. And uh, uh, David Pallison, in his book Power Encounters, talks about a woman who's casting a demon out of her toaster because it burnt the bread every time, right? This is, this is, this is kind of the, the ridiculous mentality that we have. It's, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility. It's the devil made me do it. Really? <laughs> no, my friends. If we're Christians, we can, resi- we can resist the devil. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You're responsible. Mike is responsible. The prophet of God is responsible. And he takes that gutsy guilt and he turns it to God. He confesses it. He owns his sin. And he says this, I will sit in darkness under the Lord's displeasure until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. Very important little little word there. For me. Not against me. For me. That's our God. The judgment comes if we know God, if we're walking with Him. If we cry out to Him, His judgment is not against me, but it is for me through Jesus Christ. Through the work. Micah's looking forward to the work of the Savior. We look backwards and Jesus has accomplished it. On the cross for our sins. That's amazing. And this is gutsy. He says, I am under God's dark judgment. I will trust him to be my God and to vindicate me. So rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. John Piper puts it this way. He says, that's the only way. I know how to survive as a saved sinner. Real guilt, real sorrow, real pain, real darkness under God's discipline and real gutsy faith. Gutsy faith 
that the very God who is disciplining me and is displeased with me is on my side and will vindicate me. That's the security of a man or a woman that knows God. Who knows not only the justice of God, but of his character and of his mercy. Let me ask you this morning, do you know this God? This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the God of Israel. This is the God of all who would believe in him and not perish to have eternal life. This is God. He's revealed himself in his glory and his majesty. You don't need to hide your sin. Have you approached God with your sin and your guilt? This morning you've heard that there is a hope of a shepherd king who will deal with sin. And it will mean pain for those who confront it. But it will also be for your salvation. God will punish sin. But if we acknowledge it and repent of it, he will also deliver us from it. That's the hope of the gospel, brothers and sisters. The very God that condemns my sin will save me in his grace. If you're not a believer this morning, why ever would you hold back from embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ and confessing him as Lord and repenting and believing in him? Don't wait. The call of the Lord comes to you this morning. If you're a believer, why would you let your life be derailed by sin? I love 1 John 1.9. It's my favorite, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. It says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. If you're stuck this morning in the mire of your sin and your guilt and everything else, that's what you need. Come before God. Cry out to Him. And that's what brings us to this glorious conclusion of this amazing little book. What began in chapter 1 with fiery proclamations of God's wrath, melting mountains, and splitting valleys, ends with a wonderful meditation on, guess what? Chesed. Chesed. Begins in chapter 7, verse 18. He says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnants of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in chesed, in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will again tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and chesed love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from days of old. This is God. By the way, this is the Old Testament. Did you hear that? The God of grace in the Old Testament. Not just a God of judgment and wrath. No, his wrath is not retained forever because he delights in his chesed love. Micah here seems to almost do a play on his own name. Micaiah, which means, who is like Yahweh? Right? Who is a God like you? Micah saying, we might see mockers saying, as they do in verse 10, where is Yahweh? But Micah's response is clear. Who is like Yahweh? Who is God? 
Who is a God who is primarily defined by pardoning grace? Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich and free? That glorious hymn. This word translated as pardoning in our text is an interesting one. It's called NASA. N-A-S-A-H is the transliteration. Which means to lift up or to carry. And there's a beautiful picture of this carrying away of our sin. This was captured in, in the Israelite Old Testament law by the scapegoat ritual. You've all heard of what a scapegoat is, right? Did you know there's actually a ritual in the Old Testament law about the scapegoat? This is where that, that term came from. In Leviticus 16, verse 21-22 presents it. It says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities, all the sins of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and then send it into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities. Nasah. They shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. The goat, then, in the Old Testament law, was symbolic of the transference of the burden of guilt from one unto another. It anticipates the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who bore our guilt and our sin. He is the ultimate scapegoat, the crucified Lamb of God, who casts our sin, as he says here, into the depths of the sea. This is something, as we come to conclusion here, that is not just for everyone, is it? Again, it's a limited number. It's for the remnant of his inheritance. Who are they? Not everyone recognizes their sinfulness. Now, as we discovered last week when we were going through this book, there was one person who was listening to Micah's pronouncements. Do you remember who it was who heard Micah's pronouncements and repented? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, chapter 26, he records that King Hezekiah listened to Micah and he repented of his sins. You see, the prophetic word was not just there to condemn, it was there to save. As Hezekiah confronted his sinfulness, he repented. And God relented and showed mercy and grace. Are you listening to the greatness of your sinfulness? Do you know the greatness, the greater greatness of God's mercy? Verse 18, the last verse in the King James verses, version is... This. He delighted in mercy. Right? Because he delights in steadfast love is how the ESV translates it. But the King James delight, it, translates it, he delighteth in mercy. Dale Wright Davis uh, tells the story of the famous preacher Alexander White, who went to minister to a man named John Carment. Carment was an old man. He was struggling in his old age. And he asked White at the end of his meeting, Have ye any word for an old sinner? And White was there and he's like taken back a bit. But he'd been meditating on Micah chapter 7 that afternoon. And he said just these four words. He delighteth in 
mercy. And he left. The next morning, White received a a letter from Carmen, which told how he had been passing through a, a season of deep inward darkness, but that those four words had left an indelible had left an indelible mark on his heart and sent a flood of light out of darkness for good. And a few days later, this man passed away in peace. You see, this is the comfort that this text provides. This is the wonder. Our God is gracious. He is holy. He is perfect. He is just. He is all of those things. We cannot do mercy. We do not walk humbly. We don't show love to our neighbor and love to our God. But we have a God who is merciful, who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to live out the righteousness of law. Jesus Christ is our righteousness and our hope and our delight and our joy. That's why we come to worship. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to trust not our own good works, but to trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that was slain for us.